The following is a reading from the book, Letters to a Daughter, written by William Sprague. This chapter is called Marriage. My dear child, the event of marriage marks an important era in the life of a young female. It introduces her to some new and most interesting relations. It evolves upon her a set of cares and duties and responsibilities to which she has hitherto been unaccustomed. It usually lays the foundation for increased happiness or for bitter and enduring and unavailing regrets. I begin my advice to you on this subject by suggesting a caution against forming this connection prematurely. There is scarcely anything that indicates a greater lack of discretion than for a young girl at a time when she ought to be giving her thoughts to her books and thus laying the foundation for respectability and usefulness, to be giving her heart to some admirer, and entering into an arrangement for speedily giving him her hand. The consequence of this is that she is only imperfectly educated, and not unfrequently is subjected through life by her deficiencies to serious inconvenience and mortification. She enters the conjugal state miserably qualified to sustain its responsibilities, and not improbably acquires a cast of character in that relation which unfortunately is too enduring, and which is alike unfavorable to her own enjoyment and that of those with whom she is immediately connected. I advise you, therefore, as you value your prospects of happiness for life, that you leave all matrimonial arrangements to a period subsequent to the completion of your education. Even if proposals of marriage should be made to you and of an eligible kind previous to that time, it must be an extraordinary case indeed in which you would be warranted to accept them. The very fact of your forming such an engagement, and especially of your suffering it to arrest your education, would be set down to your disadvantage. It would be regarded as indicating at least an unfortunate weakness in your character, which would be no favorable prognostic of a solid and enduring reputation. Another evil which you should avoid in connection with this subject is that of forming this relation or pledging yourself to it without due deliberation. Everyone knows that there is no department of human experience which is so fruitful and wonderful occurrences as this. And one of the most singular of them, all is the fact, that many a young lady disposes of herself for life to a man with whom her acquaintance has been limited to a few days or even a few hours. I admit that there may be solitary cases of this kind in which the result is favorable, but no female who makes a rash experiment has a right to calculate either from the analogy of experience or the nature of the case upon anything else than that the result will be most disastrous. If there be one instance in which there is proved to be a congeniality of thought and feeling favorable to domestic happiness, there are many in which the most opposite tempers and habits have been brought into an unnatural union and the grave of conjugal happiness is opened beneath the very altar in which the conjugal union was consummated. I would have you then on your guard against taking a rash step in relation to this important matter. Bear in mind that the decision which you form on this subject is to affect vitally your interests for life, and not only yours, but at least those of one other individual. The consequences of an erroneous decision you will not be able to avoid. They will meet you and follow you and attend you through the whole of the rugged path which conducts you to the grave. 
Another point of great importance connected with the subject is the character of the man with whom you are to be united. There are some qualities which may be desirable enough but are not indispensable. There are others which should be regarded as absolutely requisite, and the opposites of which is absolutely disqualifying for this connection. It may be a pleasant circumstance, though it certainly ought not to be considered indispensable, that the individual with whom you are to be connected should belong to an influential family. This might secure to you a more valuable circle of acquaintance and actually bring within your reach more extended means, both of improvement and of usefulness, than you could reasonably expect under different circumstances. It is an important consideration that in marriage the wife rises or sinks to the level of the husband, and this is a reason why at least a respectable circle of connections on his side is with her a just desideratum. For if there be any blot on the character of his family, which even remotely extends to him, as soon as her destinies are united with his, she comes in, almost of course, for her share of the odium. At least it has an influence in determining the rank she is to hold in society." There are cases, indeed, in which an extraordinary degree of personal merit completely redeems the character of an individual from the deepest family disgrace. And in such cases, a lady would have nothing to fear from public opinion and given her hand in marriage. But in any other circumstance, it were certainly desirable that she should not throw herself into a circle of connections of a rank greatly inferior to those with whom she has been accustomed to mingle. If providence should place you by marriage in a more elevated condition than that to which you have been accustomed, you may regard it as a favor that demands your gratitude and as a means to put into your hands forgetting and doing good. But I repeat, never consider this indispensable. Be satisfied if the new circle of connections hold a fair and reputable standing. I regard fortune as it stands related to the marriage of a young lady in nearly the same light as family. Great riches are desirable only as a means of doing good, as a means of enjoyment independently of the opportunity they furnish for the exercise of a benevolent spirit. They are really worth very little, and are in no respect to be preferred to a fair competence. If I have any wish that you should be rich, it is not that I may see you in circumstances of splendor, but that I may see you setting a noble example of benevolence. Not that you may outshine those around you in the magnificence of your dwelling, or the costliness of your furniture or equipage, but that you may deservedly bear the palm in doing good to the wretched and perishing. But when I remember how often riches become a snare of their possessors, and how many females have been ruined by a sudden elevation to a fortune, I cannot say that I have a wish that you should ever encounter the temptations incident to that condition. It is certainly desirable that there should be a competence on one side or the other, so much as to furnish adequate means in connection with the avails of some honest and honorable calling for the support of a family, but within this limit any lady may reasonably circumscribe her wishes. Do not marry a fop. There is in such a character nothing of true dignity, nothing that commands respect or ensures even a decent standing in the community. There is a mark upon him, an affected elegance of manner, a studied particularity of dress, and usually a singular inanity of mind by which he is known in every circle in which he moves. His very attitude and gait tell the stranger who he is, though he only passes him silently in the street. 
To unite your destiny with such a man, I hardly need say, would be to impress the seal of disgrace upon your character and the seal of wretchedness upon your doom. Do not marry a spendthrift, no, not if he have ever so extensive a fortune, for no degree of wealth can secure such a man from the degradation of poverty. I have in my eye at this moment an accomplished female, and it were easy to adduce a thousand similar cases, who married a man of vast wealth but of prodigal habits, and years have passed away since that immense fortune has gone to the winds, and the last remains of it were squandered amidst the tears and in spite of the tender and earnest expostulations of a suffering family. And now if I should look for that once rejoice in an apparently fortunate bride, I should go to an obscure cabin of wretchedness and should find her laboring with her own hands to provide bread for her more than orphan children, and she would tell me a teller of woe, which, however familiar to me, would make me sit down and weep. This same man, who has plunged her and her little ones into such wretchedness, possesses many naturally amiable qualities and is gifted with enviable powers of mind, but unhappily in early life he became a spendthrift, and on this rock the fortunes of himself and of his family were wrecked. If you should ever give yourself to a man of similar character, you need not be disappointed if you should experience a similar destiny. Do not marry a miser. Such a man may be rich, very rich, but you could expect that his riches would yield you little else than misery. It is not improbable that you might have the mortification of being compelled not only to refuse every call of charity, but to abridge in a great degree your own personal comforts, and of knowing at the same time that there were ample means within your reach which you yet were forbidden to appropriate. If you must marry a miser, I would say better marry one who is poor than one who is rich. For in the former case, to whatever inconvenience you might be exposed, you would be saved a disheartening reflection that you were poor in the midst of abundance. As I would have you always cultivate a noble and liberal spirit, I beg you will never for a moment think of forming a connection that shall subject you in this respect to the least embarrassment. Do not marry a man whose age is greatly disproportioned to your own. I will not say that circumstances never exist which justify a deviation from this rule, or that there are no cases in which it is violated, that result favorably to the happiness of both parties, but I am constrained to say that such connections present, at least to my own eye, a violation of good taste and seem contrary to the dictates of nature. Besides, it is an exceedingly awkward thing for a young girl to be going round with a man of triple her own age as a husband and puzzling all who see them together to decide whether she is the granddaughter or the wife. And a greater evil still is that there must needs be in many respects an entire lack of congeniality between them. He has the habits and feelings of age, she the vivacity and buoyancy of youth, and it were impossible that this wide difference should not sooner or later be painfully felt. And she may reasonably expect that some of her best days will be spent not in sustaining the infirmities of an aged father, but in ministering to the necessities of a superannuated husband. And it would not be strange if the burden should be increased by her being compelled to encounter the spirit of complaint and petulance by which old age is often attended. I confess that, whenever I see a respectable female in the meridian of life in these circumstances, I regard her with pity, and though I venerate her for the affectionate and faithful attentions 
which she renders to the man whom she has accepted as her husband. I cannot but wish, for the sake of her own dignity and happiness, that those attentions had devolved upon some other individual. Do not marry a man who is not industrious in some honorable vocation. It is bad for any individual to be without some set employment. The effect of it is very apt to be that he abuses his talents, perverts his time to unworthy purposes, and contracts a habit of living to little purpose but that of self-gratification. A man without property and yet without business, no girl would ever think of marrying unless she had made up her mind to sell herself to the lowest bidder. A rich man may have retired from active business after accumulating an estate and yet may find employment enough in the supervision and management of it. But if a man has become rich by inheritance and has never acquired a habit of industry and has been brought up in abundance to live only as a drone, I would say that it were scarcely more safe to marry him than if he were actually poor. For this indolent habit is a pledge of the speedy dissipation of his property. A habit of industry once formed is not likely to be ever lost. Place the individual in whatever circumstances you will, and he will not be satisfied unless he can be active. Moreover, it will impart to his character and energy and efficiency, and I may add dignity, which can hardly fail to render him an object of respect. I should regard your prospects for life as far better if you should marry a man of very limited property, or even no property at all, with an honest vocation and a habit of industry, than if I were to see you united to one of extensive wealth, who had never been taught to exercise his own powers, and had sunk into the sensual gratification of himself. Do not marry a man of an irritable, violent, or overbearing temper. There is nothing with which domestic enjoyment is more intimately connected than a natural, amiable, and affectionate disposition, and the absence of this is sure to render a delicate and sensitive female in no small degree unhappy. To be compelled to witness frequent displays of angry passion, to hear her well-intended actions often complained of, and her purest motives bitterly impeached. To feel that the stern hand of power is stretched over rather than the soft arm of kindness lay beneath her. This is a lot from which it would seem the gentleness of female character ought to claim an exemption. I say, then, as you value your comfort, venture not to form this connection with a man of an unamiable temper. The only exception to be made from this remark is the case of the man in whom the principle of religion has gained such an ascendancy as to remedy the obliquities of a perverse constitution. But this is one of the highest and holiest triumphs of religion itself, and you ought to gain good evidence that it has accomplished this noble work before you venture to stake your happiness upon it. Do not marry a man who is deficient in understanding or in mental acquisitions. I do not mean that you should look for an intellect of the highest order, or that you should consider yourself entitled to it, but I mean that a woman of decent intelligence can never be happy with a fool. If you were united to a man of inferior endowments, you would not only lose the advantage which might result from an unreserved intercourse with one of a different character, but you would also be subject to a thousand painful mortifications from the awkward mistakes and ridiculous opinions which would result from his ignorance. There is scarcely anything more painful than to observe a lady and her husband in society when everyone feels the superiority of the former to the latter, and when the wife herself is manifestly so much impressed with his inferiority that the opening of his lips is a signal for the dropping of her head or for a blush to diffuse itself over her countenance. 
It were certainly a mark of imprudence for any lady to marry a man whom she would be ashamed to introduce into any circle to which she would have access. Do not marry a man who is skeptical in his principles. If he be an avowed infidel, or if he hold any fundamental error in religion, and yet have every other quality which you could desire, it would be an act of infatuation in you to consent to become his wife. You cannot, upon any principles of reason, calculate that, if you do this, you will escape injury. I know an instance in which a young female who had had a religious education married an infidel, a thorough-going disciple of that female monster, who has recently gone through this country on the most malignant of all errands to corrupt its youth. And the consequence of this connection has been that she has plunged with her husband into the gulf of infidelity and now openly reviles the Savior and ridicules the most sacred and awful truths of religion. I know another instance in which the husband of a lady of established religious principles and of apparently devoted piety became a zealous advocate of one of the grossest systems of error that has ever been baptized into the Christian name. And though at first she halted and thought she could never yield and even expostulated with her husband to retreat from the verge of the precipice, yet she herself at length tremblingly approached and finally took the fatal leap, and now instead of hearing her talk of her reliance on Jesus Christ and of the preciousness and the power of his atoning sacrifice, you will hear her speak of him as only a good moral teacher and of her own salvation as if the glory of it all belonged to herself. And I doubt not that these instances furnish a fair illustration of the influence of such a connection on the female character. You may rest assured that you cannot be the constant companion of an infidel without breathing an atmosphere that is strongly impregnated with moral corruption, and it were little short of a miracle if you should breathe such an atmosphere without inhaling the elements of death. If I were to see you in these circumstances, though I would still commend you to a God of mercy, I could scarcely forbear to weep over your lot as if your ruin were actually accomplished. Do not marry a man of questionable morality, however correct may be his moral and religious opinions, if he be addicted to a single species of vice. You have no security that he will not sink into the vortex of profligacy." If he be a profane man, he certainly cannot have the fear of God before his eyes, and of course cannot be under the controlling influence of moral obligation. If he allow himself to be only occasionally found at the gaming table, or if he be addicted in the slightest degree to intemperance, there is a melancholy probability that he will, ere long, become a desperate gambler and a shameless sod, and think what it would be to be obliged to recognize such a man as your nearest friend a man whose character is rendered odious by the very loathsomeness of depravity. I say, then, if there be a single, exceptionable point in the moral character of the man who offers himself to you, reject his proposals without hesitation. To accept them would, in all probability, be to prepare for yourself a cup of unmingled bitterness and possibly to exile yourself from the society of your own friends." Having said thus much in relation to what should be avoided and what should be desired in the character of a husband, I shall close this letter with a few brief directions in respect to your conduct previously and subsequently to your forming an engagement. 
If a gentleman addresses you on the subject of marriage, the presumption is that the proposal is unexpected, and unless you can decide instantly in the negative, in which case you are bound to apprise him of your decision without delay, it is proper that you should make his proposal a subject of immediate and serious consideration. In ordinary cases, it is unnecessary to ask the advice of any beside your parents. It is due to filial respect that they should be consulted, and as they are most deeply interested in your happiness, you cannot fail to regard their opinion with a suitable deference. The two great questions which you have to decide in order to form your ultimate conclusion are whether on the whole you are satisfied with his character, and whether you are susceptible of that degree of affection for him which will justify this connection. If after due consideration you can answer both these questions in the affirmative, it may be safe to decide agreeably to his wishes. If you are constrained to answer either in a negative, your duty to him as well as yourself demands that you should come to a contrary decision. And in either case, you are to lose no time in apprising him of the result. If it be that you decline his proposals, make it known to him in a manner which will be least likely to wound his sensibility, and let the secret of his having addressed you never pass your lips. Your answer in this case places him in an unpleasant situation at any rate, and it were more than cruel to add to his mortification by giving publicity to the occasion of it. If, on the other hand, the result is that you accept his proposals modestly and affectionately, inform him of it, and from that period consider yourself sacredly bound through every vicissitude to become his wife. As engagements thus deliberately formed and involving much important interests, it were an indication of something more than weakness to trifle with. It betrays an obliquity of moral feeling, a lack of generous sensibility and a recklessness of character which might well lead any gentleman towards whom the outrage was directed to congratulate himself upon having been the subject of it, rather than have had the same qualities to encounter for life in the nearest and tenderest of all relations. The young lady who wantonly refuses to fulfill an engagement of marriage in the estimation of all whose good opinion is worth possessing subjects herself to disgrace, and you will find not infrequently that Providence ordains something like a retribution in rendering any subsequent connection which may be formed a source of continual unhappiness. There are only two cases which occur to me in which there can be any good ground for a young lady to decline giving her hand in marriage after it has been promised. The one is that in which the person to whom she is pledged, subsequently to an engagement of vows licentious principles or yields to an immoral practice, the other is that in which she discovers that he has intentionally concealed from her anything in respect to his character or circumstances, which had she known it seasonably, would have prevented her forming the engagement. In both these cases it is manifest that she has a right to withdraw, for in the one he has voluntarily assumed a character which will be sure to render her wretched, and which, if he had possessed it when the engagement was formed, would have led her unhesitatingly to decline his proposals. In the other he has granted her consent by deception, and it were impossible that she should be morally bound in a contract in which the ground on which she would have acted was concealed from her. But where, instead of immorality or infidelity, there has been nothing but misfortune, where the evils which have come upon him, however disastrous, have been the result not of his own folly or guilt, but of the ordinance of heaven, 
there is not the shadow of an apology for her deserting him. I do not say that circumstances may not exist in which it may be best for both parties that the engagement should not take effect, but if it is dissolved, let it be a matter of fair understanding and mutual consent. For her to refuse to fulfill it were nothing less than a wanton violation of good faith. In becoming engaged to him, she of course consented to share with him the lot which providence should appoint. And though she certainly has a right to refuse to share the consequences of vices, which he may subsequently have contracted, she has no right to decline a part with him in any afflictions which may be administered by the righteous hand of God. But you will ask, perhaps, whether there is not yet another case in which a lady may be justified in declining to fulfill a promise of marriage, that in which she discovers, after she is engaged, that the person to whom she has come under obligation is not in a sufficient degree the object of her affection, in a case of this kind, I would say, let her beware how she yields to an occasional freak of feeling, or take up the opinion that she has no solid attachment to the individual, because in some particular states of mind she feels or imagines that she feels a sentiment of indifference toward him. But if she is satisfied, after faithfully watching her own feelings, that the prevailing habit of her mind towards him is a habit of indifference or aversion, Better, perhaps, that she should honestly communicate the fact to him, and no doubt his consent will be readily obtained for the dissolution of the engagement. But in this case, let her remember that she does not rid herself of responsibility. She subjects herself to the imputation of having acted rashly in a case which preeminently required that she should have acted deliberately, or else of possessing a fickleness of character which must throw an air of suspicion around all her declarations and conduct. The blame of the whole transaction rests upon herself, and the most that she can do is to transfer it from her conduct at the close to her conduct at the beginning. Whatever evil consequences may result to the individual whom she has disappointed, she must charge, if not upon her deliberate intention to injure, yet upon her criminal neglect to avoid it. Let her never open her lips to adduce her want of attachment as the shadow of an apology. It amounts only to an acknowledgment of her own caprice, and with the discerning, passes for absolutely nothing. During the period that intervenes between forming an engagement and consummating the connection, let your deportment towards the individual to whom you have given your affections, be marked by modesty and dignity, respect and kindness. Never, on the one hand, give him the least reason to question the sincerity of your regard, nor, on the other, suffer your intercourse with him to be marked by an undignified familiarity. Do all that you can to render him happy, and while you will naturally grow in each other's confidence and affection, you may reasonably hope that you will be helpers of each other's joy in the most endearing of all human relations. Ever your devoted father, William Sprague. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, 
the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan hard drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.